welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 119, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And are you resting those at DJ fingers over there, Ravi? Well, uh, I did a live stream and apparently tonight I should be uh, DJing with DJ Yoda because this is out on Friday, so uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight's a big night. Now, yeah, if you didn't hear about this on the show the other week, Ravi is going to be DJing with DJ Yoda, who's a pretty big, like, global name DJ, isn't yeah, he? He's very yeah. well known. And he's playing in our city here in Nottingham in the UK. Ravi's going to be warming up for him using two Commodore Amigas. Yeah, let's hope they don't crash. Well, it's... <laughs> Hope they don't crash at the same time because it's quite nice when one crashes and you see that big guru ad- error up on the <laughs> All the crowd are like, yay! Yeah, guru! <laughs> Ravi's panicking in the background. <laughs> yeah. But you did actually a little live stream on Facebook. You were rehearsing for it. And yeah, I've been seeing you DJ and Amigas for about a year and it blew my mind how good you were. I've got yeah, to say. I, I practiced. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Practice makes perfect with these things. And I used to be able to DJ and other stuff, but um, now I've got used to the Amigas and the, all the little niggles with it. You know. Yeah, the nuances. Yeah. Uh, but you've got about 17,000 people watching as well, which is pretty nuts. So if you didn't watch that and you want to go back, it's on our Facebook page and check out Ravi's DJ. So about an hour and a half? Yeah, yeah, hour and a half. I was meant to do an hour, but I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> you played this banging like remix of the Chaos Engine theme. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to seeing your DJ live. You're going to get the set on YouTube as well from the Yeah, I'm going to try. Um, I'll probably put it on Facebook video because YouTube are massive at um, copyright infringement. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll put it up and see how long it is till they go, no. You know what's crazy, though, is the fact that doing this podcast kind of opens the doors to doing stuff like warming up for DJ Yoda and Amigas. And every week we get to talk to people who really were behind video games that shaped our lives. And there is one company that we've had so many people asking for over like the last two years. When are you going to do an episode about Bullfrog? Totally. And Bullfrog, oh my God. Like the games that I played, Syndicate is my favorite game. Mm-hmm. Full, full stop in my favorite game. And Oh, God, just Populous and, like, Theme Park and... Magic Carpet. Magic Carpet. I just so wanted that on the Amiga. Yeah, well, there was a rumour that game was made on the Amiga but never came out, which, you know, is going to be interesting to find out a bit more about this week. And, I mean, Magic Carpet for me, I remember vividly being at my grandma's house actually and watching Bad Influence on TV. And I've watched the episode again on YouTube since. But seeing the demo when they're flying around that landscape and I remember looking at it like, I didn't know computers to, could do this. To me, Magic Park carpet was the equivalent of mario 64 yeah. in being such a leap and a game changer in graphics and just presenting a world that people couldn't believe would happen yeah because i remember that that can't be real that must be a video or something but and the guy we've got as our special guest this week is glenn corpus now glenn really magic carpet was his baby really wasn't it he's a guy that kind of came up with the initial demo and 1991 he started working on that game and it went through a lot of iterations and changes yeah, and he also co-created Populous with Peter Molyneux. So, yeah. you know, he was there from the kind of beginnings and the roots of these God games as well. Yeah, well, that was, Populous was really, I mean, the first proper God game, wasn't it, really? Yeah, and uh, it was crazy in the kind of procedural generation and just how big it was, that world. Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be such an interesting one. I'm glad we finally got to do a Bullfrog show as well. You know, looking through the list of games he was involved with, I'd forgotten just how many massive games Bullfrog had. Yeah, we could have kept going, you know. We could have done this uh, retro two hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We got to the end of an hour, and oh, there's so much we haven't talked about, but, you know, we might revisit it at some point in the future. Yeah. But you're going to really enjoy this week if you've got any fond memories of those Bullfrog games. Hang around. Glenn Corpus is our special guest on the Retro Hour podcast. He'll be on in around 15 minutes from now. Now, 
we would just like to say a big thank you to the people who allow us to come in here and do this show for you every week and bring you guests like Glenn Corpus. And that is people who make a donation into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, we do say this every week. It's a tip jar. It's completely optional. If you like what we do and you want to help us out a little bit, that's all we're asking really, isn't it? You know, And if you can't, we understand. That's it. We're essentially it. going spare any change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a little tin you can shake over yeah. there. Everything, yeah. So if you'd like to make a donation, we accept PayPal or if you're into cryptocurrency, we have that on our front page of our website too. And just for making a donation of any amount, big or small, you will find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. The most prestigious accolade in the world of retro gaming, I think it's fair to say. At the moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah better than a golden joystick. So this week, making their place, thank you so much for your donation, Raymond DeVerd. Craig Marshall. Andrew M. Marsh and Stefan Blinks who all made donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast and you can do the same at theretrohour.com and that is also the same place where we put the links to all of the stories that we talk about as well because every week we kind of run through what's been happening in the world of retro for about 15 minutes before the interview and you know you don't have to look around for the links on the, on the websites or anything like that or Google them we put them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com as well including it will be the place where you can get a link to the Amiga Works documentary Yes, so the Amiga Works documentary was a a Kickstarter that happened uh, quite a few years ago, and it was fantastic. It's all about Alistair Brimble. He was our first guest on the show, wasn't he? Yeah, first guest on the show, and, you know, I'm DJing with stuff, so I'm dropping some Brimble beats in there. And he was actually watching the um, live stream the other day. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, which is just like, oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) We're not worthy. We're not worthy, (laughs) totally. And uh, Paul Bridger, the guy who's behind this documentary, Super fan, Alistair Brimble, super fan. He's selling out of Amiga Works, so he's kind of got this beautiful DVD that's all signed by Alistair Brimble, and you know it's got the full uncut version or the director's cut. So you know this this is a lot longer than the original, and he's got around twenty copies available, and they're limited editions for around twenty pounds. And we're in this, aren't we? We're in that documentary. I think so. I haven't yeah. watched it yet. I've, I've just got my DVD. Now I need to get a DVD player. You are retro, right? You still got VHS at home. <laughs> yeah, <that's it. laughs> but yeah, I remember doing a bit for the the documentary, and like again, it's don't let that put you off the fact that we're in it, by the way. But having a tribute like this, you know, this to me is everything that's great about the retro gaming community and retro computers and the internet in general. Really, the fact that a guy like Paul, who's been a lifelong fan of someone like Alistair. Got to meet him, talk to him, and actually took the time to make a whole documentary about this guy's work. Yeah, it's so cool. I remember seeing Paul at um, Amiga 30, yeah. and he had the original tape that Alistair Brimble had kind of produced, you know, with a photocopied cover and everything. It's so good. And Alistair's such a lovely guy as well. Oh, yeah. And very talented. I mean, again, another one of these who, you know, when he looked at the list of tracks that he did and games he worked on, it's like, if you, if you miss that first episode, I will admit listening to episode one will probably be a bit cringeworthy for us. I don't know ever listen to that show again, but skip all to the interview. That yeah. bit's great with Alistair Brimble. So if you want to get hold of this that documentary all about his work, it's called The Amiga Works, and we'll put a link in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we've had a few tweets in the week um, at Retro Hour UK. If you want to follow us on Twitter, please do. Uh, people asking, so are you guys going to talk about Billy Mitchell? Yeah, and this isn't the guy from EastEnders we're going to be talking about. Yeah, I was a bit confused at first, I was like... <laughs> So this is Billy Mitchell, and he's from The King of Kong, uh, yep. which was uh, that very very popular movie, actually. It's really? quite high up in IMDb, mm-hmm. and it's all about this battle for the top score of... Donkey Kong. Donkey yeah. Kong, yeah. 
So basically, what's happened is um, there's there's always been people questioning these uh, scores. Now, a guys on YouTube did a massive analysis of um, Billy Mitchell's videos because back in the days, you know, before the internet, he'd submit VHSs of his yeah, of his score. So it shows the loading of the screen of Donkey Kong, and for a few frames, if you're using Mame, it loads in a different way to use in the original arcade machine. And Billy's one seems to be loading in this manner of MAME. And he himself has stated he's never used MAME. MAME's his... an emulator. Yeah, an emulator. yeah, he's never used it in his life. So this is kind of putting his scores into doubt. Now, this has grown and grown and grown over time um, to the point that now um, Twin Galaxies, who were the official kind of scoring database and they they were the first as well so they do get a lot of slack twin galaxies because they really kind of didn't know what they were doing nobody did yeah you know they were water made it up essentially yeah yeah they were collecting scores so we've had water day on the show and he's talked about billy and everything but Mm -hmm. that was obviously not when this stuff's come out now they've they've actually said um that they've removed billy mitchell's score from his database and banned him from entering events this is also based not solely on the video evidence, but it's also based on the emails of judges at the time that they have on their archives. So there's obviously more to this story than we know. And he had a Guinness World Record that apparently has been stripped off as well. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, that's got a kind of sting, I guess. But he did, he did release a statement, and it's only a minute long. So let's see what Billy has to say. Hi, I'm Billy Mitchell. We're here at the Midwest Gaming Classic. I'm here with Old School Gamer Magazine. I've been asked to address things that are recently in the media. The fact of the matter is, now there is a true professional due diligence being done to investigate things that happened as far as 35 years ago in a professional manner, not in a shock jock mentality designed to create hits. We will show that everything that has been done, everything was done professionally, according to the rules, according to the scoreboard, the integrity that was set up, not 2014 forward by the current regime who wants to reach back 35 years. Everything will be transparent. Everything will be available. I wish I had it in my hands right now. I wish I could hand it to you. But it's taken a considerable amount of time. Witnesses, documents, everything will be made available to you. Nothing will be withheld. You absolutely have my commitment to that. We've been at this since 1982, and it's not going to stop now. It's a difficult one because, on the one hand, if it, if there is any kind of wrongdoing there, then it's right that he, he's lost the title and everything like that. But I can also see it from his perspective. If there is kind of maybe something was misunderstood along the way, then that's got to really sting for him. It kind of defines him, doesn't it? Because yeah. that's, that's, you know, he's most famous for that. His whole style's based around that. Like, even when you watch the films like Pixels and stuff, there's these video game champions and they're kind of seen as these gods. So... Yeah, it's 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 a real hard one. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Let's see. Well, it sounds uh, if, like he's appealing if, it, doesn't it? If he's appealing it, yeah. yeah. Let's but, see. But you think of kind of you know famous guys who are famous for this around the world. It is him and Steve Weeby because of that documentary, mm. and the fact that you know everything in that film now, if it turns out to be false, it's kind of a bit of a lie, and that's kind of, that's upset the retro community quite a lot. I think. Yeah, and also I think it's uh, you've got YouTube and you've got like thousands and thousands of people re-recycling the same information and analysing it again and again and again. And it's, uh, I don't know, that pressure must be insane. 
nobody likes a cheater. I think that's what's annoyed a lot of people, if, yeah. if that is true. But, I mean, from what I've seen, he does have some legitimate high scores as well. So maybe stripping him of all his titles and banning him might be a bit over the and top. And that's but... the thing. And you know he says this has been going on for a long time. Yeah. Even when we originally watched King of Kong, you know, he would submit scores from uh, away. He would have judges that only saw him do it. And, you know, there was that kind of air of questioning his stuff, even then. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know what his gameplay skills are like now. I know he does still compete, but you know, if he can go to a massive retro event and do a live demonstration and break that record again in front of people, then yeah, I guess yeah, he'd be redeemed. I think so. some of the records are even saying, you know, uh, you can't achieve that uh, score. There'll hopefully be a conclusion soon. So yeah. we'll wait to see uh, what Billy produces. Looks like he's uh, working on some behind the scenes. And speaking of things that are uh, ongoing at the moment, this is really exciting though. One of my favourite games is getting an anniversary. Again, 25 years it's celebrating. It seems like recently every game that we were into is celebrating like it's 25th or like 30th anniversary. It's obviously. showing that we're old, Dan. <laughs> we're getting <God>. old. <laughs> well, this is Mist. Now, we actually, again, you know, we did an episode about this. We did a Mist episode about, what, a year ago now? Yeah. Yeah, with uh, Robin Miller and uh, his brother of Rand, isn't he? And they're the kind of creators of Mist. And what a, you know, groundbreaking game that was. Really, Mist was the main thing that sold CD-ROM drives back in like, the early 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was probably like the biggest title. And essentially, it was like a kind of a, a slideshow with puzzle elements, you know? Yeah, very well done. Uh, but again, like you said, it was all like pre-rendered and everything, wasn't it? Uh, it kind of tricked the technology a little bit to make it seem more powerful than it was. But there are a lot of people that love Mist. And I'm one of these guys who, you know, I enjoy playing Mist. The puzzles are a little bit complex. I must admit I have uh, you know, looked up a few hint guides every now and then to get through the, the tougher bits. But just because, for a nostalgic reason, it was such a legendary game at the time, I'll always be very fond of it. Well, it was also like a space we'd never been to. Mm. You know, it was so shiny and 3D rendered and kind of never really explored anywhere like that before. And apart from when you were watching television shows and stuff like Nightmare was on and stuff. Yeah. But you were never actually in there. Yeah, until you played Mist. And it had that kind of similar atmosphere. Nightmare's probably quite a good comparison. It was kind of that, you know, the lone person travelling through this, like, mystical fantasy world. Yeah. You did feel very isolated playing Mist, and it was all, like, very unusual and very surreal. And it wasn't yeah, a bit creepy in some parts. But, I mean, I didn't realise quite how many Mist games there were because I played the original Mist. Uh, Riven, obviously, was a huge game, but there was Mist 3, Exile, uh, Revelations, End of Ages, Real Mist. And now what they've done is... Mist Uru. Mist Uru, yeah, I mean, there's loads of them. And what they've done here is, to celebrate the 25th anniversary, there's been a Kickstarter running that um, was completely funded in eight hours. Yeah, and, and look how much has been funded. <laughs> it's about eight times over what they yeah. wanted, yeah. 7,671 people have backed it, and it's still got 28 days to go at the time we're recording this show. But it is a limited edition, exclusive pack of all the missed games. You can only get through Kickstarter. And I feel like cool bonuses have included too. Yeah, so it's like 35 quid, yeah. and you basically get... For digital download, all of the miss. But then if you're getting into the higher kind of areas of it, there's like physical DVD versions of all the boxes. But there's the missed book. Yeah. Do you remember the book? You can get items from the kind of world of mist. So there's, uh, you know, the uh, linking book here. There's the original designs from the sketches of Riven. And... Loads of different kind of bonuses. So depending how mist mad you are, yeah. <laughs> you can kind of... <laughs> Get some good stuff. Well, there's even stuff like an animated um, LCD linking book panel they're talking about in here as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's it's really a love letter to Mist, isn't it? Yeah. If you if you have got fond memories of that series and you love it, 
this is a real collector's item and it's only available through Kickstarter as well. So if you want to get hold of that, there is still a bit of time to get involved. And uh, it's just great that so many of our favorite games are like, you know, suddenly getting this like treatment all these years on. Totally. I just need it in VR. I need that one in VR. <laughs> this would be amazing in VR, oh, actually. God, yeah, yeah, I'd love that. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. Now, before we get into this week's special guest, uh, Glenn Corpus, talking about Bullfrog, some pretty big news in the world of Nintendo Switch this week. Yeah, and uh, I, I only showed this to Dan just now, and he was kind of absolutely amazed. Um, the Nintendo Switch has been hacked, and people are running GameCube games and more things on it. Uh, do you want to explain the process, Dan, because this is pretty mental? Yeah, well, they were always talking about the fact that you hacked your Wii U, didn't you? Yeah, but I did a soft mod, which was just going on the browser and using a small little exploit that basically uh, loaded it into different firmware. And Nintendo were kind of giving up on that system. They didn't care about it. They never patched it. But I remember reading that, you know, the Switch is not going to be hackable. They've patched all the holes in the software and everything. I don't think anyone expected them to find an exploit in the chipset. (laughs) So, and apparently this is down to... Which you can't fix. Yeah, well, yeah, Yeah. unless you get new hardware, you know, essentially. Uh, But the saying here, it's an exploit in NVIDIA's Tegra X1 processor. And that powers the Switch and also the Shield TV as well. So what it essentially does is, the way you do this is by shorting out one of the pins on the Joy-Con connectors. Now, the Joy-Cons are those kind of little detachable... The things that go on the side, yeah. Yeah, so you detach that, and some people actually made like a a little device that's 3D printed that you can clip onto the side of your Switch and it will short out these pins, and then it'll kind of go into recovery mode. And that is where you can uh, get into the system, essentially. And it does like a DMA overflow. That's crazy. So you're basically just making it go, no, and then go, ah, okay, I'll accept this new firmware, or I'll accept this new piece of software that's not supposed to be on here. It essentially thinks it's broken and you're trying to fix it, I guess. So, But now you've done this, they reckon it's going to be hard for Nintendo or NVIDIA to patch unless they make like a new version of the hardware, which, you know, they may well do at some point. But for now, it does mean that, yeah, there is kind of a a console hacking and homebrew scene emerging for the well, Switch. Well, I find the most interesting thing about it was, um, you know, they say you need to short the pins. Yeah. Back in the days, people would be sticking spoons. They'd be <laughs> sticking all sorts of kind of safety clips and, you know, uh, bits of nails and stuff. Now they're able to 3D print this hacking tool instantly. So uh, it's called the Switch X Pro. You can download plans for it and just uh, print your own at home. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't plug it in the wrong way. (laughs) Bang. (laughs) It's funny, though, you mentioned that. I remember a friend of mine, um, to reboot his Commodore 64 because it had no reset switch, he got like a screwdriver and just touched some of the pins on the user port and it'd reboot every time. (laughs) I'm like, what are you doing? I don't think I'll be trying this on my switch just yet, but, you know, it is interesting. It'd be cool to see what people end up doing with that. Yeah, I wonder if that voids the warranty or not. (laughs) I imagine it would if you had, like, scorch marks on your pin. (laughs) I don't know how that happened. (laughs) So we'll keep you up to date with that. And all of this week's stories, you can find them all at theretrohour.com. Right, the Ravi is going to get ready to uh, do his big DJ set tonight. Look out for more news on that over the weekend. Hopefully we'll get a little uh, clip up on YouTube of people yeah. raving me, to him. Me falling off the stage. <laughs> yeah, don't drink too much before you go, yeah. Ravi. Save it up for the after party. And now that we talk about Bullfrog, legendary games, Populous, Syndicate, Magic Carpet, Powermonger, with this week's special guest, Glenn Corpus. <laughs> Listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Glenn Corpus. Thank you for coming on. 
Hello. Um, nice to be here. Yeah, really and, uh, appreciate you joining us. Yeah, doing what I'm best at, remembering ancient stories. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are going to get some stories about your time at Bullfrog. You know, Ravioli, as I mentioned, huge fans of the games that you worked on. I mean, kind of going back to the beginning, what was kind of the thing that first got you interested in computers and games then? Where, where did that kind of start for you? It was. You know, I was quite old. You know, I was 16 before I even saw a computer. I mean, and I... I must have seen video games before that. Yeah, a few years before that, there were there were um, you know Space Invaders machines at the skate park and and stuff. And uh, but um, but you know, the first the very first computer I saw was when I went when I went to school to start the sixth form when I was sixteen. There was a couple of Commodore Pets around behind the physics lab, and uh, the school wasn't teaching computers or anything. But but I was allowed to play with them, which I which I did, and I did. I did that to the detriment of my A levels. So yeah, I um, then went on from playing around with the pets. I think there was a, they, they had a, they had an Acorn uh, Atom as well, you know, the the pre BBC BBC one mm-hmm. um, for a bit. It was fun because that actually had graphics. But I, only, I think I only saw that at the very end of the sixth form. Well, your first machine at home was a ZX81, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah, which was um, that was interesting because I bought that from the very first advert and and. Um, when I got it home, it was five minutes later that I'd run out of memory, and I had to then sort of get another fifty quid, you know, because the thing I think it only cost oh, it cost a hundred, didn't it? Built seventy from a kit, yeah, and I didn't make mine from a kit. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, so yeah, as soon as I bought it, I had to I had to then scrounge another fifty quid off my parents to uh, to be able to actually do anything with it. You know, because I, because the reality was, as you, you know, the first thing I tried to write was something which I'd done on the pet, which was, you know, a sort of Space Invaders base moving left and right, and um, as it moved to the right of the screen and you fired, it used up so much screen memory that um, that it ran out of memory. And one day said exactly one. So, what was your um, first break into the industry? Well, I, when I left school, I'm, I'd, I'd sort of, I, I didn't bother going to university because. I rather arrogantly thought at 18 that I was that I could get a job and I would be in a better position than I would have been three years later um, if I went if I'd got a degree. I mean, rather missing the point of going to university, I now realise. But um, so I set about trying to get a job. Ended up working for four years as a computer operator, and that was interesting in itself because it was on mainframes, and it, and it meant that in about 1982, which I think slightly predates when. Um, when Colossal Cave got on onto the spectrum, I played it on a on a, a SEL mini computer, you know, the original mainframe ver- version with the you know the you're standing at the by the by a, gr- a grate in the ground and a stream rolls into the grate and all that's you know the original that original Crowther and Woods Colossal Cave mm-hmm. was kind of cool, but um, after four years of working in that. I managed to get a programming job working on telex machines on uh, old CPM things, which is pretty. They were pretty outdated by by 1986 anyway. And while I was doing that job, I met this guy called Kevin in a computer shop in Guildford, and he had an Amiga jacket on, and he was working for this company called Taurus that did this call that was doing you know a, a, a relational database for the for the Amiga. I basically bugged him until I could get a job interview. And I went along, and of course that was that was the parent company of Bullfrog, and 
I met Peter Molyneux and we talked about programming and stuff for about two hours. And then he um, then he said, well, we haven't got any vacancies because me and Kevin are the only programmers we need. Can you do anything else? And I said, well, I can draw a bit. So he sat me down in front of the paint and said, draw a bit of wood. <laughs> I can't I can't draw anything. Draw a bit. And I remember sort of sitting there with the blend tools. I'd, I'd kind of seen paint before for five minutes. And um, I sort of, I drew a, literally a plank of wood with wood grain on it or something. And I got a job as the as Bullfrog's um, first graphic artist, which was um, uh, yeah, which was interesting. That was that was around yeah, that was in late '87. So yeah, uh, over 30 years ago now. Well, what were the first titles you were working on there? Well, the very first thing I did on the day, the day I turned up was the load screen for a thing called Adrum, which was kind of a proto Amiga tracker. It was written by by a guy called Andrew Bailey who wrote Druid and Druid 2 and it, and his and a friend of his was was the salesman working for Taurus and a musician and he he's the guy that did the music and the sound on the first few Bullfrog games and he used Adrum as the, as, the, as the composing software I think some of the Amiga trackers even support support it as a format but it's it's a pretty obscure one but um, uh, so yeah the load screen for that was the first thing I did and then then the second game was a port of Druid 2 um, from C64 to Amiga, which we did with... So my, my, first, my first proper job was sitting with a Commodore 64 next to me, uh, looking at the levels and copying the, the level editing into the, the, the level designs into the, uh, the editor that Peter had written for the Amiga for Druid 2. And that, that, was, that was released by Firebird and... You know, like as is the way with many games. You know, with, I mean, we got a few thousand pound up front and never made any any royalties. <clears throat> and then Peter went back to working on the database, and me and Kevin, but then then wrote this thing called Fusion, which was the, um, sort of an eight-way scroller mixture of puzzle game and uh, and shoot 'em up, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but didn't really work work that well. And at that point, it seemed like there was, you know, no one was giving me any work to do. So I was thinking, what am I going to do now? So I went home, dragged my ST in, and set about trying to port Fusion to it, only to find that what people said about the ST not being able to horizontally scroll was true, and it just, it just wasn't going to happen. So you know, at that point, I thought I was about to lose my job. Well, you know, you mentioned that then, because that's quite funny. I used to read about you in magazines as, like, you know, the Atari ST guy at Bullfrog. You were kind of cold a lot of the time. Yeah, well, yeah, this is, but what, what happened was, because I couldn't do, because I couldn't do, um, do the horizontal scrolling, I set about, um, you know, I'd always been fascinated by the isometric graphics and spin dizzy. They'd been my favourite game on, my, on, my, on, on the, uh, on the um, Android CPC. So I, I just want, always, always wondered how the graphics work. So I, I set about drawing a set of blocks, you know, because if you think about, if you look at something like Spin Dizzy or Populous, the the blocks are basically a set of 16 blocks with each corner raised to a specific size, and then they're just tiled together in a in a way that you know makes ramps and, and pyramids and, and stuff. And um, I just thought I'll experiment, see how that see how that actually works. And um, over the course, I think it was the August bank holiday in 1989, 88-89, I just knocked up this demo. And because of, of these these isometric blocks moving around, and because we had, I had no way of getting source 
any source data for the map um, and I wasn't about to write an editor for it. So I thought, oh, I'll write something which tries to generate a convincing looking landscape out of it. So I wrote this thing that sort of, and it just looked like a bunch of intersecting pyramids. You know, but in fact, it looked like the start level of the start of a populist level, as it turns out, because that code is basically that is the same code that shipped in the game. On the Tuesday morning, when people came back in back into work, you know, I sh I just showed it to be showed it to everyone. I said, I don't know what this is useful for, but I made this thing, and uh, and Peter got instantly excited about it, and. Uh, and went off into a room for about a week to play, no, to to play with it. It was it was um, it was pretty exciting actually. And I heard there but, was a, a Lego prototype as well. Was that part of the uh, development? Ah, <laughs> uh, the Lego prototype was um, that was that was Peter learning how to deal with the press. <laughs> it must. It wasn't even the first interviews. Probably when Ace were coming, it was somebody. It was definitely a magazine that we rated as being very important. And he just sent somebody down the sh down to a toy shop to buy some Lego, and then got them to make a, uh, a Lego populous landscape, and uh, and pictures of it appeared in the uh, magazine, which was all very funny and stuff. Except hid the fact that it was actually made from a prototype that I'd knocked up, you know, which is which was a, a little bit galling at the time, but. Um, Peter will admit that I, the, 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 my version of the story is how it happened. Populous became, you know, such a big game and groundbreaking in so many ways. I mean, it's often credited as being the first kind of, you know, real god game. So where did that kind of idea and concept of the game come from then? But this is the thing which I, I really love about Populous and why it's, it reminds me, oh, it's a slightly arrogant way of putting it, but it reminds me of, um, of Rubik's Cube. Erno Rubik wasn't trying to make a puzzle. He was trying to make a a weird piece of engineering that where the corners, you know, managed to hang on in a spooky way that, you know, you know, and it just turned out that once you stuck the stickers on, it, it turned out to be, you know, possibly the best puzzle ever. And Populous was a similar thing. I was just messing around with, with this landscape. I didn't know what was going to happen. And um, <clears throat> very quickly in that, in that initial three day demo, when it was just a landscape, which you could click on and modify it, you know, it sort of became obvious that flat land was going to become the currency. That was all Peter's doing. The way that the way that 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 actually worked out, but it was, it kind of fell out of the system. You know, it wasn't designed, and quite how we ended how we ended up there with um, you know, this sort of indirect control. I suppose it's a bit different from other god games because it really, you know, it really it really was very indirect the control. Well, it's amazing how you could manage to fit such a huge world on like you know one floppy disk and. Uh... The kind of generation of the landscapes led to having around 500 levels. Yeah, well, that was an interesting thing as well, because the game was basically multiplayer only for, for the longest time. I mean, we had a, we had a serial cable run, running between the, the ST and the Amiga, which we initially used for file transfers, because at the time we started it, you couldn't really read an ST disk on an Amiga, and you definitely couldn't read an Amiga disk on an ST. <clears throat> so we literally had, like, terminal programs sending files across you know across across this null modem cable and we also used a null modem cable for playing stunt car racer populous the game what we used to what we used to do was we'd work on it all day and we'd stop work about seven in the evening and then we'd play it multiplayer um for about three hours and then peter would use that uh, to inform how how the computer player should work you know the gameplay was multiplayer only and the single player game um, was a computer opponent that, that was designed to beat me, and there were a bunch of variables that you could 
you could set like you could say the computer's allowed to raise a lower land do swamps do earthquakes do volcanoes floods whatever and also the computer would have a speed like how, how often it could it was allowed to think so like it on an easy level, it might only be allowed to think every 20, 20 ticks of a game. You know, on the on its hardest levels, it would be doing it, be thinking every tick. So you, you literally had this thing that it's in populous in the in, in the release populous. There's a mode called custom game. So probably no, hardly anyone would have ever played. But that was the only game that we that, that there was in it. But luckily, the producer at Electronic Arts was a guy called Joss Ellis, who'd also been he'd also been the producer on um, on the game we did for. Firebird on Druid, but when he was at Firebird, he'd also worked on the Sentinel. And I don't remember exactly it happening this way because I was also a big Sentinel fan. Maybe me and Josh got to- Josh got talking about Sentinel, but we ended up sort of ripping off the way that the level progression worked in that. If you remember, in yeah. Sentinel, you'd sort of finish a level, and then the number of um, points you finished with was the number of levels you skipped. So there were ten thousand levels in 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 the Sentinel. And populars basically work the same way. You'd skip some levels, and so if so, like just like Sentinel, if you couldn't do the level you were on, you could go back and play the previous one by entering the code, and then finish it with more points, and you could skip the level that you just had trouble with. And exactly the same mechanism worked, you know. Um, and the file there was just a text file with um, 500 lines in it of of I don't think no, it was only I think it was actually only 100 lines of different level settings. And each of those constitute five of the levels in the game. And um, that file was knocked together in about two days, including all the tuning, um, uh, right at the last minute of the uh, development. So if that hadn't got in, I don't know what people would have been playing because they weren't playing it multiplayer and they weren't playing custom games. So uh, that was another piece of luck on that game. Yeah, because I, I was reading that... Um there was a, a, a cheat that was made so that you could actually get to the end of Populous and see what, what the end was like, and then you realised that there was no end had actually been put in there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there wasn't. No, you could Basically, the names of the levels were the codes to get in, and you could kind of guess them because... It was. It wasn't. You know, there was. It wasn't exactly done with. You know, crypto strength security. It was just sort of a sort of simple little checksum. And um, yeah, you could. And, and so you you could probably play about ten levels, guess what the, the the parts of the level names were, and then try sticking a few of them together at random. And and like you might get one that worked. You know. So um, it was. Just, it was strange that you could get away with things like that. But the whole the entire level progression was about two days work. So there was no level design in it or anything. It was just a bunch of numbers to feed the fractal generator and the and and stuff like that, and a bunch of flags to say which you know, which of the effects each you know you or the computer opponent were allowed to use. Well, I mean, um, you know, that the game was received so well. I mean, people loved it. You had the expansion packs after that, and then uh, that engine was used again in Powermonger in uh, in 1990, and that, that was you had three D vector graphics in that, didn't you? Was, was that like a big big change from the original? Yeah, well, that was basically the thing that I worked on next. It was um, uh, we we'd done Populous weirdly. We'd done it. In, we'd written it in C with a little bit of assembler for the for some of the screen routines, and then you know we sort of felt embarrassed about this and thought we'd better go to using pure assembler like all the proper game developers did which was kind of funny because it was probably about the same time that sensible people were moving to C um, because machines had got that little bit faster 
so Powermonger was the first pure assembler thing we did, and it was which, which meant we had a bit more power to play with. And also, we we took over the whole machine and you know, trashed the operating system so that you could get all all half all half meg to sort of stretch out in. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love working on that because it was the first bit of three D rendering stuff that I'd done. Although it was kind of depressing to only be able to draw about a hundred polygons before you before the thing dropped to an unusable frame rate. I never enjoyed playing uh, Powermonger the way that I'd enjoyed I enjoyed playing Populous, but um, I was kind of proud of it as a as an achievement. Yeah, it did kind of and feel it, like it was pushing up to the hardware limits a bit because you did get slowdowns in that game, didn't you? Yeah, and there was sort of, there was some stuff on the game side of it that was uh, just ridiculous, like and the size of the, the 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 crowds of people. I mean, some of them could have like 150 people, and it's just insane. You've got like a 3D engine, you know, on an eight megahertz. <laughs> 68,000 and then you're asking it to draw 200 sprites on uh, 150 sprites on top and it's not you know the thing would just slow down to about one or two frames a second well what new ideas did uh, Populous 2 bring and what did you want to expand after the original Populous 2 again was pure assembler much quicker Populous and Powermonger were very much ST first games they, they didn't use the blitter on the Amiga or they used it for clearing the screen maybe you know um, but Populous 2 actually was was the only thing I ever wrote that was uh, Amiga native code, you know. There was so that meant the Amiga version was really quick, so it could do a full screen and it could do it could, it could do more layers of sprites. The other thing about Populous, about Populous and Populous Two, is Populous the original. The graphics were done by me. The whole thing was done in seven months by me and Peter, and that included. And during that time, I did the graphic engine and the ST port and drew all the graphics except for the load screen. Populous 2 had two man years of graphic art artist work in it and a huge banks of sprites and instead of six or seven effects it had it had 36 I think and um, it was just bigger in every way I mean it, it could also record games and play them back and weird you know weird little things like that yeah it was just just a much much bigger project I mean it, it took about three times longer and and had about three times the people working on it personally I I, I didn't like it as much as Populous one not to play because it was it was too confusing and there were too many options. Like you never quite knew if you were um, taking the right approach. There was something about the simplicity of, of the original populace. But maybe that's just maybe that's just me. People do like being able to collect stuff. Well, you know, with the original populace, I mean, it was ported to systems I, I would never imagine could handle it. Stuff like the Master System and the Game Boy, even. I mean, mm. it's nuts that it could actually you know be scaled down to an eight-bit system. Yeah, the Game Boy ones incredible because like the, the ST and Amiga had like at least half a meg of memory, and to get into the boring technicalities of it, there were two hundred and fifty-six units on the on the on the screen on the in the game, which is you know, obviously that's how many you can fit into a byte. So that those things could either be a person walking around, or a, or a town, or a pair of people fighting, or whatever, and then occasionally a new one would be spawned somewhere, you know, if there was a spare one. So the fact that they managed to fit that into 4K of RAM, there must have been an incredible amount of compression going on. But the the thing about the the Game Boy version, it is playable. I mean, I finished the first level on it, mm. but if you actually try and play the first level, by the time you get to the end of it, and there's that the, it's full of people. It's down to about one frame a second because whatever it is, it's having to. I mean, it should never have been released. There was also there was even a NES version which works with even. I think it's actually I think the NES is the one with the 4K and the and the Game Boy might have had eight, but the NES is way less powerful than a Game Boy, and um, that version was 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 actually unreleased because because it really didn't work. But the, the whole reason why there's a Game Boy version at all is because I was um, about the time we were working on Populous Two, 
I was in love with my Game Boy. I used to play Tetris on it all the time. And um, just for my own amusement, I, I knocked up a screenshot of what Populous might look like on a 160 by 144 screen. I think that's the resolution. There were four shades of yellowy, yellow to black. And um, I showed it to John Cook, who was a, the agent who went around the world getting different ports made. And he just said, give me that picture on a, on a disc. So I did. And then about two weeks later, he came back in with a... He'd he got an, an, an EEPROM-based Game Boy cartridge, which I've still got here somewhere. Um, which, when you when you ran it, it just it just showed this screen that I'd drawn, and he'd basically taken it around place until he found somebody who said, you know, who'd publish it. I think it was because those weird, those those sort of a lot of the extra versions were done by a company called Imagineer rather than Electronic Arts, a Japanese company, and um, yeah, and it just it just got it just got made <laughs> and. Uh, knocked up because I you know because I'd drawn this this stupid picture I also did one I did a picture of what it might look like on the spectrum but that never amounted to anything <laughs> well one of my favorite games by Bullfrog was Syndicate and Syndicate had this even more expansive kind of free roam and uh, you know a full living city um where did the idea come around from well, Syndicate was an interesting one because when I, when I when I did Populous, it was it was, Populous on an on an Amiga was just brute force drawing all the blocks, you know. Whereas the game that had inspired it, Spin Dizzy, was running on eight bit systems, and it had a very clever system for doing for updating just the bits of the screen that had changed, you know. And that was kind of a clever bit of what it did, you know. So so, and I was sort of interested in how that might be used to do a scrolling. You know, version of um, of that that kind of engine. So I made this demo of that on the ST, and it never amounted to anything. This would have been possibly before I started working on Powermonger. Well, probably while we were doing Populous as well. Yeah, originally there was another game in development which was which was going to be this thing with four scrolling windows, where you had four separate these four agents that you would take around this level to do whatever and it never it never really amounted to anything in fact in fact that became flood weirdly mm -hmm. it's not one of the more remembered bullfrog games i heard that originally you had kind of four separate teams running on the map and you could all play networked that i suddenly that game became isometric and it became one window and it became the four guys the four guys in the team but yeah you're in much the same way that populous had been um multiplayer all through development. Syndicate was only multiplayer. I mean, a Syndicate, I, mean, I, I didn't really work on Syndicate because, uh, as a programmer, but I was sitting next to Sean as he did. I was working on the, on the engine for Magic Carpet at the time. I mean, my only contribution, apart from the initial design of how the engine might work, was, was designing a few of the levels in Syndicate. But I did help playtest it a lot, and it was hugely popular. Every day there would be like four-player games and it was the only the only way of playing it. You know, every weekend there would be like people would people people's friends would come in, and there would be like you know forty eight hour syndicate playing sessions. Real case of a game that everybody was, who was working on it loved, which I think shows in the final game. Oh. But weirdly, the the final game was very much single player. They didn't the the, the the final game didn't even ship with multiplayer. I don't think. I really love the storyline, the kind of idea that, you know, people had chips in the back of their head and they were in this fake reality and the whole world was run by corporations. It was like very kind of a Night of the Living Dead mixed with cyberpunk kind of stuff. How did the story come around? To be honest, I don't remember exactly. I and mean, I probably wasn't even cool enough to have read 
Neuromancer or anything by then. So that it was it was more about just a just a story that encompassed the reality of what was going on in the game because the game was about controlling these guys and uh, you know and adjusting their drug levels with these sliders. And then there was another big aspect of the game was going out in the street and controlling people. And then the the the, you know, the chips in the in in the head and the yeah I really don't know who came up with that, but it was it was it was very well done. Um, <laughs> I remember they uh, toned down the Nintendo version quite a lot. I think the gr- it was Green Blood yeah. that you got on it. I think the um, the German PC version and Amiga versions had Green Blood as well. And uh, finally, on Syndicate, what was your favourite weapon? Mine was the uh, laser that could fire across the map. That was insane. Yeah, it was, that was ridiculous, wasn't it? I quite like the fact that the uh, that the I think it was called the Gauss gun. I don't know. I don't know why yeah. that was. Uh, could could draw draw as many sprites as it could and. Still run at a reasonable frame rate. That was quite impressive, <laughs> and I don't feel I don't feel arrogant saying that because I wasn't involved in the technical side of the rendering on that one. So, but um, yeah. <laughs> that was that was always nice because um, when, usually when there's a big pile of sprites in a bullfrog game, it means the frame rate's down to three frames a second. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's not a very good reason. Is it? <laughs> Well, I've been around that time. Um, it must have been a very exciting place to work when you're having all these like hit after hit, pretty much. What was the working atmosphere like at Bullfrog? I mean, was it all work and no play, or was it what was it kind of like? The interesting thing about the early days of Bullfrog is that it, it was it ramped up very, very slowly. I mean, I I was arguably the first person working at Bullfrog, and I was I was the first person to have Bullfrog on my paychecks. But that's only because the people who were there before me were had all worked for Taurus. But um, I think I was the sixth person. And by the time Syndicate was being done, we were still only about 30. There was lots of lots of working late for, you know, but with, you know, for with no official overtime or anything. Everyone everyone was just living it back then in the early days. And we also never got never took took much in the way of external investment. It was always yeah for the, yeah for the first for the first oh, I've got to have to do some maths on it on the years here. But but from 87 till about 1991. 92 it was it, it was just a gradual build up and each time we were just we, we were you know getting a you know a slightly smaller upfront from EA because we had money left from the previous game so we were making a bit more money per copy and and all that you know all this kind of stuff and then and then in about 94 95 it got to the point where we weren't asking for any upfronts mm. and because of that we were getting too much of a royalty and that was when EA decided to buy Bullfrog but even that wasn't didn't really change the culture. It was still, it was still very much bullfrog. I mean, every everybody in any kind of position of, of seniority in the company had worked their way up. You know, by the time EA bought Bullfrog, there were like six teams making. It was, there was a lot of games being made at the at the IL time. So there was so, so Dungeon Keeper, Syndicate Wars, Magic Carpet, um, Theme Hospital would have all been in development at once. And all of the people running those teams were all people that had worked their way up from... I mean, Sean Cooper started as a YTS kid when he was 17, you know. And, uh, you know, a lot of the other people running teams were people, just people that had originally come in to, to do a conversion you know, or whatever. And it was very, very sl- slow-growing and organic, which meant, you know, it meant that the culture sort of, sort of survived, you know, all the way up until Peter left in about 99, really. 98, 98, I guess. Well, I think, you know, Peter did a very good job of being the front man of Bullfrog, and he'd all, you know, he'd all see him in the magazines and TV shows. And I know it, there's, there's kind of a bit of a divisive opinion of Peter online these days, but 
what was a man really like to work with? How did you find working with Peter? It was it was great working with him in the early days. I mean, when the company was tiny, it was was small. It was my entire like like I say, Populous was done on a on a bank holiday weekend when I went into went into work because I had nothing better to do and and you know my social life was largely involved. I mean, whatever parties were happening at Peter's house and stuff back then, we were really close mates. But it kind of we kind of drifted apart quite early on because you know I I had more I ended up getting a girlfriend and then a wife and it was very much. Uh, young nerds doing it you know, with nothing better to do that was the that was the culture at bullfrog for the longest time mm. peter liked it that way because and and it, and it worked you know because you know it was massively passionate about about the stuff he was working on and he was also the other thing that the people probably don't realize about peter is he was a great programmer i mean it was it was it was kind of interesting for me because i'd been playing around with game related stuff before sort of drawing blocks and sprites on the screen and things you know right from the days of you know 8-bit computers and uh peter had actually written a game but he didn't know the idea that the memory that the screen was just memory wasn't the level that he thought on he was much higher level programming you know thinking you know um yeah and he was just able to get stuff done in a way that i think a lot of a lot of other you know more sort of to the metal hacker types just wouldn't do but you know yeah and he was he was instrumental on the programming right up until probably theme park and maybe a bit of dungeon keeper but after after a certain time you know when the company got to a certain size he kind of had to stop and uh and by then things were a little bit different i mean and, and also peter and i i mean we had we sort of fell out at one point i mean when he left bullfrog i remember but did, did an interview for Edge magazine, and and uh, somebody said, "Oh, how's Bullfrog going to survive without Peter?" And and I said, "Well, actually, he didn't. He wasn't really involved in Syndicate or Magic Carpet, and he got really really pissed off about that. Mm. Not because it wasn't true, but because you know. But, but but what Peter did is he would be, you know, the reason he wasn't involved in Syndicate is because he was working flat out on Populous Two and then Theme Park." During during that time, and the reason he wasn't involved with Magic Carpet is because he was working on on Theme Park and Dungeon Keeper while it was being developed. I mean, he was very you know he was focused on one game at a time. And the cool thing that he did is he let other people like like me and Sean and and others um, just get on with what we were doing. And uh, but he didn't like me pointing that out <laughs> at one stage. Although, although we you know we we, uh, we got over that some years later. <laughs> Well, you did, you did mention yeah. Theme Park in there a couple of times, and obviously I remember that coming out, and it was such a huge title for Bullfrog. I mean, did you have much involvement in, in Theme Park, and what did you think of it? No, I was like I say, I was working on uh, Magic Carpet for most, almost all the time that that was in development, because it was the exciting, oh, uh, 256 colour, every every pixel on the screen is just a bite of memory. It's, that was that was. Lovely. It was so fantastic after having to mess around with bit planes and and you know for pixels and on the uh, you know on the on the Amiga. So for Theme Park, my involvement was, I think I was kind of involved with the sprite routine a little bit, but I was never involved with with the um, with any of the gameplay elements of it at all. You know, eventually Roller Coaster Tycoon kind of took its thunder a bit, I guess, didn't it? I mean, there was an obvious influence there from Theme Park, I think. But why why didn't they develop Theme Park further, like, and why did they let Roller Coaster well, Tycoon take over, I guess? 
Well, there was that was that was an interest. When I left, I left Bullfrog in '99, and uh, my new company was called um, uh, was called Lost Toys. Very probably not very very memorable, but although we did do it. I think the best game I ever did was done by Lost Toys, but that's a separate story. But we were um, uh, the art director at Lost Toys. Darren had been the art director on Theme Park World, which was the second theme park game, and uh, we, it still hadn't been released. Oh, finished or released after after he left so we were so it would have been like ects 99 we were out there trying to you know pitch our games games to publishers and we walked up to the ea stand and there was somebody and this is like on the sort of the day before it's open to the public so it was pretty quiet in there we walked up to the ea stand and there was somebody showing theme park world which darren had been the um lead artist the art director on you know um only six months earlier and then some, some lawyers turned up. Some lawyers turned up and said, "This is a bit like like roller coaster tycoon." And like three of us ex bullfrog people who weren't actually no no, no longer working for EA <laughs> turned around and told them that that, that, that that roller coaster tycoon was just a theme park ripoff anyway, <laughs> which is quite fun because <laughs> we wouldn't have been able to do that probably if we'd have been still working for EA. But um, so and, and there's some really it's interesting because I mean I mean obviously I mean I can understand how why people might like roller coaster tycoon better it was more focused on the roller coasters which is kind of what you want but some of the things that they did the same were pretty audacious like on theme park the name of the ride because you could name your own ride would scroll through a little window on the ticket booth and and they did exactly the same thing it was just it was it's amazing what you can get away with ripping off game playing games you know um but rip off the name or get the graphics too close and you can get in trouble but uh but Everything else, you're all right. If it's, if it's just the if it's the game mechanics, you know, they seem to be effectively unprotectable, which is uh, I've always thought was interesting with games. You mentioned Magic Carpet there. How long was Magic Carpet actually in development then? Because I didn't know it was developed that early. When we moved from Amiga first development to PC, I immediately started playing around with that 256 color mode. So when would that have been? It would have been just after Populous 2 was finished. And so I was, I was basically playing around with polygon rendering, and which then turned into sort of Gurad shaded polygon rendering. And then I saw some screenshots of early pictures of Ultima Underworld, and and it, I, I realised that texture mapping was sort of just Gurad shading in two D. And um, so I was playing with this thing in the background for a long time. Um, but probably not that, maybe maybe two or three years, but it seemed like a long, t- long time at the time. And then suddenly, uh, I think Doom had come out, and EA and Bullfrog you know, wanted an action game. And we had this, and at that point, uh, Magic Carpet was kind of a, it was just like a thing you could fly around with, like a nice, with a nice fractal landscape and, and uh, interestingly applied textures and, no idea of what the game was going to be. You know, all we knew is we were, we didn't want to do a flight sim because nobody was that into flight sims. Somebody, somebody said, we came up with the idea of a magic carpet, which seemed fine because the reason the reason I didn't the reason we weren't into flight simulators is because, from my perspective, they, you, you were just always looking at like a blue sky over a you know over a green or blue or brown base bit and shooting dots in the, you know, on the horizon and it was it just seemed like a waste of the of the technology so uh so we, we wanted to think of something that would be where you would be able to see what you were fighting and and be closer to the ground and 
somehow a magic carpet became the thing. The thing about magic carpet that I always find myself, find myself saying, so I might as well say it again now, is I'm very embarrassed by, the, by how close the fog was in it. I'm, gonna, I'm now going to explain why that wasn't my fault, which is going to make me look very petty. But when I was originally working on it, when it was, when it was, my, when it was my project, and I was just me and an, art, and an artist uh, experimenting, the cells of the landscape, the tiles, were about 10 metres across, and you could see 20 tiles to the horizon. So you could see about 200 metres, which isn't very far, but it's, you know, it, it's kind of okay. You know, you'd, you know, but then somebody came up with the smart idea of, um, of building castles out of the landscape. Um, in doing so, they, they redefined the size of one of the squares of the landscape as being about two metres. So suddenly you could only see 40 metres um, you know, instead, of, instead of 200 so, you know, that that extreme fog isn't my fault. <laughs> but, you know, but fixing it by drawing another, you know, another few thousand polygons wasn't an option back then. I mean, the fact that it was drawing 800 polygons um, and a bunch of scaled sprites, uh, a decent frame rate, was, uh, wasn't a bad achievement at the time. I remember seeing it first, I think it was on, like, Bad Influence on TV, and they did a demo of it, and I it blew my socks off when I saw it. And then I remember, because I had a... You remember the Amiga CD console, the CD32? Ah, yeah. yeah. I, I had that, and then I saw it. it was going to be released on the CD32, it said in the magazines, and then it just never came out. I mean, was that like a technical issue, do you know? Or? Well, this is a, uh, it's funny that you should ask about this, because if you Google that, Google the Amiga CD32 Magic Carpet, and you'll, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what, the, what happens. I found a forum somewhere where people were asking exactly the question that you just asked, and they had pictures of the Amiga version. And they showed a guy on a carpet because Magic Carpet was first person, so this was a third person game. And it showed this it had a sort of skeleton dragon thing flying around. And those those graphics, that those they were from an early version. Because what happened with Magic Carpet is I was messing around with it for a couple of years, and then suddenly they wanted to get it out early and short get it out quickly. And Sean Cooper wrote the game. You know, he took took what I had and finished it in about in about seven months flat. And um but before that, you know, I'd been playing around with this this thing for a couple of years, and uh, and um, the version that was supposed that was that was built in those photos as being CD32 was actually an old PC version. Now, what I think happened was that during that time, there would have we would have still been talking to the Amiga magazines because they'd been very good to us. And I, what I think happened, although I, a long time ago is that when a magazine was visiting us to talk about these ports, they were, also, they were also shown around the rest of the office. And they saw Magic Carpet running on a PC and would have asked the question, is this coming out on the Amiga? Hmm. Somebody implied that it would. Now, it might well have been me because I can remember getting quite excited about the CD32. Earlier on, I mentioned about how the 256 colour mode made things much easier for for texture mapping and you know, those sort of things were really difficult on the Amiga, if, if possible at all. So there was the rumor was circulating that the CD32 would have a byte a byte per pixel mode. So I probably would have said to them, "Yeah, or this this could be done, but on, not on the Amiga, but maybe on the CD32." Oh. As it happens, the CD32 actually wasn't powerful enough for something like Magic Carpet, which really required like a 33 megahertz 486. So there's no way that even a what was a CD32? It was like a 12 megahertz, 68,020 or something. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember. Um, but it was like a, it was like an Amiga 1200, wasn't it? But with this extra chunky to planar conversion chip that was that might have might have allowed a byte per pixel mode. So basically, it was a it was 
an outright lie told to an Amiga magazine to keep them interested. <laughs> but but um, I found this forum where somebody was asking the same questions, and I joined the forum so I could reply to it. And people were still arguing with me about whether it, whether it ever existed. <laughs> but if you if you Google Magic Carpet CD32, um, you'll find the screenshots and probably the thread. I mean, I've I've refound the thread. It was a conversation I had about five years ago. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, but sadly, it, was ne- it wasn't ever going to happen. Well, I'm glad but, you put um, that rumour to bed because I've been wondering that for about 25 <laughs> years. So. <laughs> Still people waiting for the unreleased copy. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I felt I, there were five years ago. <laughs> but, and, like, you know, when I was saying that, it's, it wasn't ever going to happen. And, you know, they didn't want to believe it. It's funny. <laughs> well, let's get towards, you know, the late 90s. Why did Peter leave and what was it like after he left? Oh, that's... Uh, Basically, Peter had left. It kind of left Bullfrog to finish Magic to finish uh, Dungeon Keeper. I was involved with Dungeon Keeper at the beginning. I mean, I, I wrote the, the graphic engine for it, um, but it took a long time. I mean, uh, after about two years, it was start. It was it was started again, but the engine wasn't rewritten. It was just that the game the game was started again because it, Peter hadn't been very involved because EA had just bought Bullfrog. Peter was kind of involved with EA worldwide and spent a lot of time. In, in the States and Canada. And he sort of came back and was like, oh, this game isn't going well. well I want it, want it to go. I'm restarting it. I think it all got talked about you know, in the magazines at the time. And um, by the time he finished it, a couple of years later, he'd moved the team out to his house. And um, he decided that he he wanted to leave. So I, I really don't know, because by then I'd kind of, I hadn't, I, wasn't, I hadn't really seen much of him because, like I say, he wasn't, like I say, he wasn't in the building. And, um, and when he left... EA didn't really they possibly didn't appreciate exactly what he did which was which I would which I would categorize as focusing on one game while leaving the rest of the company to do its thing you know which produced the others you know and um he was replaced by a lot of people from outside you know they put various managers in at various different this is this would have been about 97 and I'd been the head of R&D which basically meant Engine, you know, the engine department, um, and at that point, I found myself interviewing a guy who was going to be my boss. So I, I decided to move sideways and start a game team. I was working on a game called Indestructibles, or it was actually the second incarnation of Indestructibles. It was going to be this superhero game. It, it was featured in magazines a few times, but that got cancelled anyway a few years later. But when he left the company, it really, it really sort of changed, and. Uh, and then there was like an exodus of most of the most of the good people. So, so Peter left to form well, form Lionhead, and then a load of other people left to form Lionhead satellite companies. Like if you remember the company that did Fable, it used, it used to be Big Blue Box. Mm-hmm. It was Dean, Dean and Simon Carter's company. It wasn't actually part of Lionhead originally. It was a, it was a Lionhead satellite company that eventually folded into it. But also there was Mucky Foot. Was um, a load of other senior Bullfrog people left left for so it got to um early 99 you know all of my mates all the people that i i'd you know had a lot of respect for had left i mean and uh it just seemed like the thing to do and we had some ideas and i had some some good people that that we were we were that i teamed up with and um we left to form lost toys well that must have felt a bit like the end of an era then after all that time there well, yeah, it did a bit, but we were still in Guildford and we were still seeing the same people in the same pubs. It was like it just—it was just more like that's how it was. And then it's so funny to think that that it was what ninety-nine. It's nearly nearly twenty years ago now. 
what had happened as well at EA is that things had got a lot of things had got canned. A lot of the th- uh, theme, theme prison and theme resort had been canned, and this game called Void Star that was going to be this sort of this epic space shooter had been canned, and Indestructibles, the superhero simulator, had been canned, and it, they were all done for weird reasons, you know, because we were now getting interference from EA we hadn't seen before. I mean, Indestructibles was a really interesting one because because it was. Um, it was it was my project it was, it, ostensibly, and there was but there were designers and, and things who were, who were involved with it too. And uh, the idea was gonna, was going to be that you're patrolling a you know you're a superhero patrolling your city, and it was going to all be about knowing your way around the rooftops. And although you would have some kind of sense that would tell you that there was a battle going on over here, there was a, there was a crime going on over here, so you'd be able to sort of get get there quickly. And health you couldn't actually fly in it, but you could climb really quickly and glide and it was a, just a really nice mechanic and we had it working multiplayer but only sort of stupid little test demos there was one there was a game where you could where you could shoot fireballs at this um this model of a volkswagen camper that we'd stuck in you know we'd, we basically got, got got a football field from the guys downstairs who were working on some fifa game and uh this volkswagen camper model that we'd got from some online library and like we were just, you could just run around shooting fireballs at it and trying to get it into the goal. But because <laughs> the game wasn't really finished, what would happen is sometimes it would fall off the side of the pitch, and then everybody who was playing it would have to go down, and then <laughs> get underneath it and lift it up. Because <laughs> 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 that's the, the cool thing about game, doing games multiplayer first is that they don't have to actually work as long as everyone's got the same rules, they become fair. Somebody from EA in the states got very excited about it, said this could be, this could be our quake. Sort of a few weeks later than that, somebody else from EA said, "Why are you doing a superhero game and you haven't spoken to Marvel? What are you thinking?" And so, so one of the guys contacted Marvel. We got a uh, a reply from them saying, "We're not really interested." And by the way, here's our list of two thousand superheroes that that are part of the Marvel universe. Don't make any of your characters they're too much like any of these. You know. <laughs> and shortly after that, the project was canned, and we were. We were asked to sort of to to tread water while they decided what they were going to do with it, and that was when um, when I flounced out to to do Lost Toys, which was you know, <laughs> arguably quite a bad move. But, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, Glenn, today you are still involved in the games industry. I know you've been working with mobile games and actual reality. I mean, what are you working on now, and what's coming up from you? There was a there was a game that we did at Bullfrog called High Octane that was um, this lovely driving game that was made out of made out of an early version of the, the Dungeon Keeper engine that later it got kind of ruined at the end because it became too much about shooting and power ups and less about the the the, the driving mechanic. So I, I did a I did a mobile game um, called Ground Effect that was basically a rewrite of that, which I was kind of proud of, which didn't do that well. And uh, then about more recently, I did a thing called Topia World Builder, which has um, actually had half a million paid downloads. Uh, and um, it's sort of a populous-like game with a modifiable landscape and um, set on a sphere, rather like Populous the Beginning, which is the third populous game. Mm. Uh, and uh, and more recently, I've been doing I, I've been working on this game called Fat Owl with a Jet Fat Owl with a Jetpack. Which, for some reason, has taken me three years, and t- took me three years to get to the point where it wasn't even half finished. It was supposed to be a really simple, quick game. It's a two-button control game, kind of aimed at mobile, with an aesthetic based on 
some sneaky shader use so that it's sort of it's sort of simplistic graphics but the whole the, the idea is everything looks like it's cut out cardboard with drop shadows around it. it looks sort of like south park actually all the paper and card is shiny and textured but i never i never quite finished it because i shouldn't really be working on games on my own and uh i i i, I realized and uh, you know much too recently and then, then last summer my, my son finished an animation degree and we worked on a game together which is called Powered Up, which is um, it's an AR game for iOS. And it's, that's Powered Up, P-O-W-A-R-D-U-P, which is a really stupid name because people <laughs> people don't say it right. And then they that was fun to fun to work on, and it was it was in, it was and we did it very quickly. Like we we got it out in two or three months, mm. and it's written in Swift, which is Apple's new language, which is all which is a really nice, really really nice language to work with, and uh, it was a revelation for me because I hadn't. I hadn't learned a new language for about 20 years. And since then, I've been doing contracting work in AR, and I'm now working, I'm now working mostly in a, on a VR, uh, an Unreal-based VR modeling package, which is, uh, which is interesting. And very recently, like, like in the last week, I've started um, something, started writing something in Unreal because there's you know, a, a new game, and I, I'm going to try and make it work kind of like populist did in the first place which is it's a, it's a game about it's a game it's a, di- it's a different take on flatland as a currency rather than trying to develop it into a game on my own i'm going to get it to the stage where that stuff's working and then then try and find someone else to turn it into it to help me turn it into a game and i've you know there are there are, there are some candidates for that but um yeah i've got it's kind of become very clear to me in the last year that, that I shouldn't be even trying to work on my own because it doesn't really work. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of calling it populous but spelt with an A-C-E instead of O-U-S. <laughs> I think E-A would let me get away. You can but try. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's probably too close, yeah. Well, Glenn, yeah. you know, I can't believe the amount of incredible games and legendary titles that we've talked about in like just under an hour there. That's been, you know, insane how much incredible games you've been involved with. Thank you so much for coming on and um, sharing the inside stories of some of our favourite games. It's been wonderful talking to you. Uh, thanks very much. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun.